Good morning. I'm, I'm super excited uh, to have the opportunity to share with you guys this morning. Um, as many of you know, I'm, uh, my primary responsibility here is to oversee youth, youth ministry and the families there and youth. Um, but it's, uh, it's often one of my great joys to be able to share with you guys on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, and as much as I love being a pastor, as much as I love serving here, one of my greatest loves in my life is for my daughters. Um, I love my girls. I, 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 love, I love them like, like almost no other thing. And, and specifically, I love playing with my girls. I love when I have the opportunity to, to, to rough house with them, to play with them. And anyone who has ever um, had kids, or if you've ever been around kids before, or if you yourself were ever once a kid, then you have, then you have probably played the game of hide-and-seek. Uh, my girls love playing hide-and-seek, and you can, can kind of get a sense of their individual personalities in the way that they play hide-and-seek. Uh, for example, my, my second oldest daughter, Kaya, she's the oldest of our set of twins. She would be your, your typical uh, toddler hide-and-seeker, right? So uh, it usually plays itself out in, in one of a couple different ways, and, and primarily what it looks like is once she has found a hiding spot, she will go back to that same exact hiding spot every single round. Unless she's feeling particularly strategic, in which case her new, her new strategy is wherever daddy hid last, that's where I'm going to hide every single round. So if dad hides behind the door, Kaya hides behind the door. If dad hides in the bathtub, Kaya hides in the bathtub. If dad hides in the oven, Kaya hides in the oven. I'm just kidding. We don't hide in the oven. That's where we put the cat. Um, she, but she's also, she's also very typical of toddlers in that she, she is a giggler. So whenever she finds her little hiding spot, she has a very quick giveaway because the entire time you can just hear her going, <laughs> the whole time while she's hiding. Now, Brielle, she's the counterpart to this twin duo, and she's the sneaky one. Uh, Brielle is the type, she's the type that likes to move during hide-and-seek, so she'll try to find, like, multiple little places to hide. So if you go into one room and you come out, she'll try to sneak out the door and go into another room for you. Or one of her favorite things to do is when you walk into the room that she's hiding in, she'll jump out at you, try to scare you. And I, I don't know if it's her way of thinking, um, you didn't really find me because I found you and I jumped out at you and I scared you first, even though you weren't the one that was hiding, you were the seeker, but I win anyways. But that's, that's the diabolical nature of my bri-bri. And then there's my Sela, my two-year-old, my sweet little Say-Say. She's my special girl. She, uh, it's a good thing that she's cute. Um, when, we, when we play hide-and-seek, you know, very much it, it begins the same way. I'll close my eyes, I'll begin to count, and I'll be like, one, two, three. And I'll hear this eruption of excitement in the living room where we're starting out, this calamitous commotion, this rumbling that's taking place. And I'm keep, I'll keep counting, 18, 19, 20, ready or not, here I come. And I'll hear this precious little voice, I'm ready. <laughs> and so I open my eyes. Right in the middle of the floor, the same room I'm standing in, is Sayla, not under anything, just laying on the floor with her hands over her face, just 
nose and mouth smushed to the ground, little legs just kicking. (laughs) And then my favorite part is as soon as I start searching, I hear this little, oh, dada, oh, dada. Did I mention she's my special girl? (laughs) I love all of my girls, and I don't play hide-and-seek with them because of the challenge that it presents or the mysterious adventure we get to go on when we're searching. The reality is most kids are terrible at hide-and-seek. I win, like, every single time. My older daughter, Eliana, she's, she's gotten really good at hide-and-seek because she's played it a lot longer. She has learned the rules. She gets it. There's a lot of things that little kids are bad at, but the reality is there's a lot of things that I'm really bad at, too. There's a lot of things that I struggle with, especially when it comes to the things that the Bible says I need to be good at. When I think of all the things that I'm bad at, some of the things that frustrate me the most are the things that I feel like I'm supposed to be good at by now. The things that I've been doing for a long time. I know the rules now. I get it. I'm supposed to understand it by now. And I've gotten good at hide and seek because I play with kids that are a lot dumber than me. But... But maybe you've asked yourself some of these questions as well. Maybe you've struggled with this in the same way that I have. I say to myself, I ask myself, if I'm a Christian, if Jesus lives inside of me, if I am blood-bought by God, then why do I struggle? Why, Why am I perpetually two steps forward and one step back? Why am I in this continual journey up the mountain, so close to the top, only to just slide back down to the beginning again? If I'm supposed to be holy, if I'm supposed to be set apart for God, then why am I so bad at it? Or maybe you're still in a journey to figure out who God is and what relationship with God is like. And so maybe you've wrestled with some of these feelings. Maybe you've said to yourself, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. It seems like it's an awful lot of work. I don't think I can do it, and most of it doesn't even make sense. So whether you're the frustrated believer or you're the one still searching, if you're self-reflective at all, and and I understand not all of us in here are self-reflective. In fact, most of you think you are way more awesome than you actually are. But if we're self-reflective at all, if we've heard the Bible taught before or if we've read anything about who God is or uh, in some way we've been become made aware of the standard that God has for us, which is way up here, And we realize that we often dwell someplace way down here. And what happens is we try to fill the gap. We try to fill that void. We try to make up for the difference of between where God's standard is for us and where we spend most of our time. And sometimes we inch a little bit closer and sometimes we get a little bit further away. But the Bible, which which by the way is hopelessly impossible to try to fill that gap on our own. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. This is God speaking. He he says, be like me. Meanwhile, the rest of the Bible goes on to say that you're not like me, but be like me. So what does it mean to be holy? 
What does it mean to be set apart, and why are we so bad at it? We're going to take a look this morning at what the Bible has to say, and I think there's some really helpful things that will help us see how we become holy and how we get better at it. We've been in a series over the last few weeks in the book of Joshua. If you want to open up to Joshua, we're going to be picking up in chapter 5 where we have left off. If uh, you're curious about what has happened in the first couple of chapters, please check us out online, graceagsyracuse.com. You can find all of our previous messages on our website there. But when, where we pick up here, in, and one of the good things about um, studying and, and reading these books that are kind of the reaccounts of the Israelite people uh, at the beginning is that, God, that we recognize these are God's chosen people, and uh, it's good to study them because we're very much like them. We pick up with the Israelites. Now, they have just crossed over the Jordan River. God has just stopped the river from flowing, and they've just walked over on dry land. And these are the very first steps that these people have placed their feet on in what is possessing God's promised land for them and possessing their promise. The very first steps on the ground that God has promised them for hundreds of years. And what God is about to do is something very strange. In Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of Israelites. So, God made flint, or so, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel in Gibeath Haraloth. Joshua had, had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who, were left, those who left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle that they left, when they left Egypt had died. For they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, there you have it. Isn't this great? Pastor Doug goes out of town for one weekend. And what does he give me to preach on? The the dad of five daughters, by the way. The section about circumcision. Now, I I have been... In great anticipation all week, it, this is just the way that my brain works, which is probably not a good way that it works. I, I, we have a, a wonderful interpreter over here. And as much as I will now have to spend the next 15 minutes saying circumcision, we get to watch. <laughs> so... In spite, of, in spite of this awkwardness, there's some very interesting things that's going on here. The precise moment that the Israelite people are about to possess their promise, God says, wait right here and circumcise all the males that you have neglected to do so. At this moment, like, like right now, like, what is it you want us to do? 
I mean, didn't we just read in, in a couple verses back from that that the, the, all the Canaanite people, they, they, they lost their heart. They were paralyzed with fear. Now, if I'm, if I'm Joshua or if I'm one of the Israelite people, uh, you know, I'd be like, whoa, 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 just a second here. Just a second here. Just, just, you know, just hang with me for just a second. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to get out of this, right? Like, I'll get in line twice if I need to, you know, that kind of thing. I'm just... It, the, you know, the, all the Canaanites, maybe now's a good time, paralyzed with fear, we go through that, maybe we do that other thing a little bit later, some other time. Um, God's timing here reveals something very important about the heart of God. God is way more concerned with the relationship he has with his people than he is about anything else. God is way more concerned about the relationship he has with his people than he is about anything else. What we need to understand is as these, as these Israelites are, are taking their first steps on the promise that God has made to them, and this has been a promise that has been withstanding now for hundreds of years, as they're about to finally possess that promise, God does something really significant here. What God wants to do is he wants to confirm, he wants to make sure that the Israelite people know that they are his people, that you are mine. It's helpful to understand that in the Old Testament, circumcision was the way that the people of God identified themselves as separate from everyone else. It's not only the physical distinction of circumcision that served as a symbol, but it it is also the symbol that God used to identify that there was a new deal being made with his people. In Jewish cultures, businesses back then, um, when when, when two families or two businesses made a new deal together, when they made an agreement together, they did something what was referred to as cutting a deal. And what they did is they took an animal and they cut the animal in half. And, And by cutting that animal in half, by shedding the blood that was there, there was this new deal that was being struck, this new uh, agreement that was being made. And so for the Jewish people, this cutting away in circumcision was symbolic of a way of making a new deal between God and themselves. So by requiring Joshua and his men to do this, God is essentially saying to them, you are mine. You are mine. However, in the New Testament church, um, which is the, the era of time that we live in now, this ritual is no longer practiced in that way. But it has been replaced by two very significant practices. Through communion, which we're going to have the opportunity to share in today, and through water baptism, which we will be having in a couple of weeks, we remind ourselves and make a public declaration that we belong to God. And simultaneously, God is saying, you are mine. You are mine. So what does this mean for us? Why does this, why does this, how does this answer the question? What does it mean to be a holy people, to be set apart, and how do I get better at it? The first thing that we need to figure out is where do we start? Where do we start? When it comes to being holy, where you start is incredibly important. If you don't know where you are, trying to get where you need to be going is impossible. If you don't know where you are, trying to get to your destination will be impossible. A couple of weekends ago, um, I took our youth to a, a fall retreat uh, down to a, a camp just outside of, uh, Penn, uh, just across the PA line. 
And I relied on my, my trusty uh, phone map GPS to get us down there. We head all the way down 81 through Binghamton, right across the PA line. And I'm following the turns. It's telling me, you know, in a mile and a half, turn this way, turn now, and turn right this way, and turn here. And um, finally, I get to where my phone tells me, you have arrived at your destination. And it's been raining the whole way down, and it's dark, it's, and, and we're in the middle of the woods. It is pitch black at this point. And my phone says, bing, you have arrived at your destination. And I look around us, and there is nothing but pitch black woods as far as I can see. And I think, hmm, this is our destination. This camp sounded a lot bigger on the internet than it appears to be right now. And as I humbly swing my door open, as I'm leading this trail of six other cars behind us, and I, with my head down, begin to walk my way back to each of the leaders that are driving to let them know, we have arrived at our destination. Um, And I have absolutely no idea where we are. Now, see, here's the problem. At this point, we have lost cell reception. And so I don't know if my phone was just relying on what it remembered the last time as it was giving me directions, um, but I don't have any internet access. I don't have any cell reception to call anybody. We are lost in the middle of this road, and I have no idea where we are. Well, thankfully, as I started to walk my way back to each of my leaders, we got to the last car that was back there, and Chelsea was back there, and she's like, my phone says we need to go 500 more feet forward. Well, you know what? That's as good as any directions that I have so far, so I was like, let's roll the cars 500 feet forward. We'll see what we get. So we jump back in the cars, and we roll forward, and don't you know, 500 feet up the road in the pitch black is the road that turns off to the camp that we needed to get to. If you don't know where you are, you are never going to be able to get to the destination that you're headed to. If if we were to pick us all up and just drop us somewhere in the middle of the world and we were to say to you, make your way back to Syracuse. It doesn't matter how good you are at studying the stars. It doesn't matter how good you are at knowing that the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, so I can figure out north and south and all those sorts of things. Because the problem is you don't know if you're east of your destination. You don't know if you're west of your destination. So you might know what direction each thing's going, but you have no idea which direction you need to head in to get to your destination. If you don't know where you are, trying to get where you need to be is going to be impossible. So where do we start? As the journey progresses, we begin to lose heart. We begin uh, to become fearful because we don't know if all of our efforts are in vain if we don't know where to start. Where you start doesn't start with you at all. In fact, if you did start with you, you don't have a chance. When it comes to holiness, you don't start with you at all. If we're going to talk about being holy and set apart, you have to start with God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, this is what it says. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. 
when God made you alive with Christ, he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. We need to understand that we have to start with God. If we begin with us, we'll never get to our destination. That it is God who begins all of it all of this in us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, it says this. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which will never take away sins. Doesn't this sound familiar to us? We wake up every morning and we say to God, I'm going to do it better today. I'm going to do it better than I did yesterday. We, we wake up each day and we say, I'm going to be more determined today. I'm going to pray to God more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to be stronger today. Today. I'm going to be more disciplined today. I'm going to be kinder today. I'm going to love people better today. And we, 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 I'm going to be more holy today. But what this says to us is day after day, they offer the same sacrifices again and again, which never take away sins. Verse 12. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, where he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by the one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy." I love that verse. For by the one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. It's a process of being made holy, but we have already been made perfect in God's eyes. The good news for us is, God is not, is not in the process of making me the best version of me that he can. He's not in the process of making me a better version of me. We are, when we put our faith and our trust in God, the, the scripture tells us we have already been made perfect. But there's a process to being made holy. And God knows that there's a process that is taking place. Which makes us even more thankful for the perfection that we have through Jesus Christ. He doesn't expect us to be good enough. He doesn't expect us to bring anything to the table. All he expects us is to put our faith and our trust in him. How exhausting is it to constantly believe that your right standing with God has anything to do with your behavior, with your good works, with your determination, with your efforts, with your holiness. The more you understand how God makes you holy and how the Holy Spirit makes you more and more like Jesus, the greater love for God that you will have and the more empowering your life will be. So easily we get away from how God makes us holy and we move right towards how you make you holy. We don't even have the right materials to make ourselves holy. The only thing that we bring to the table is the sin that makes salvation necessary. That's all we've got. If we wanted to try to build ourselves a holy life, we don't even have have the right materials, much less the right currency, to build for ourselves 
holiness. All that we have is the sin that makes salvation necessary. I have a video that I want us to take a look at, and I think it does a great job of explaining some of the Old Testament rituals regarding holiness and how it connects to our present circumstances and how God's holiness transforms our lives and how he makes us his holy people. Let's take a look. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow 
makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. So if God through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the one that makes us holy, why does the Bible also say things about laboring and striving and the need to run with endurance? Isn't this why we get so frustrated, so bogged down? Isn't this why we slip from the top of the mountain back down again, two steps forward and one step back? How do we strive for something that is given to us as a free gift? This is how you strive. You strive by faith through grace. Let me make it more simple. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, many of you know, if you've heard me preach before, you're like, this is all he ever preaches about. Why? Well, here's the, here's the good news, bad news. This is the only message that I will ever preach because it's the only message that we need to hear over and over and over again. We fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let me hold there for just a second. I, I, I think there's something unique in the wording that we can find here is that God recognizes that, the, that this journey of faith, this process of holiness, this process of being identified, identified as God's holy people is going to be a journey, a, a, a heavy, weightsome journey. And he says, what we need to do is we need to strip off the weight that slows us down. And it's not just sin that slows us down. Otherwise, it would just simply say, let us strip off the sin that so easily t- trips us up. But it says, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And I believe more often than not for us, some of those other things that slow us down is this incessant need to feel like we have to make ourselves good enough. We have to do enough. We have to try harder. We have to be more disciplined. We have to be more determined. And we strive and we strive and we strive to make ourselves more holy. And it, it burdens us and it slows us down and it weighs us down. Strip off every weight that slows you down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let's run the race with endurance, the race that God has set before us. Verse 2. When we do this by keep we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God cannot fail. I love this verse. It basically says, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the initiator and the perfecter. Other translations say the author and the sustainer. This idea is he is the one that starts it and he is the one that keeps it going all the way till we, until our ultimate holiness is achieved. That the initiator and the perfecter of our faith filled with joy, he, filled with joy, he died our death and rose from the grave showing that all of sin had been paid for. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. It's crazy how with good intentions we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put our heads down and we say, I'm going to pursue God and I'm going to avoid sin. And usually we end up getting it the other way around and we say, I'm going to avoid sin in an effort to pursue God. And we become more determined and we figure out we're going to do this on our own. And we take those couple steps forward and inevitably, because we don't have the ability to make ourselves holy, we find ourselves often back where we started. But your only job is to keep looking at Jesus. Learn more about Jesus. Love more of Jesus because of what he has done for us. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit makes you holy. Do you know what the best part about playing hide-and-seek with my girls is? The best part isn't the challenge or the hunt in trying to find them. It's that they desperately want to be found. 
The best part of hide and seek for them is being found. It's not in the hiding. It's the joy and the excitement when they are found. It's the best part for them. The hiding is just a means to get to the finding. Every morning when our little Selah wakes up, this morning was no exception, we hear this beautiful little voice from her room, and she says, Oh, Dada, where are you? Oh, Mama, where are you? As we get older, we get so determined in playing the game that not, and, and not getting found that we miss the joy of being found. And we become so foolish in our attempts to hide from God. We're like my sweet Selah, just laying on the floor in front of God with nothing over us, just covering our eyes and our faces, just begging that God doesn't see us for who we really are. It's like when a guest shows up at your house unannounced and heaven forbid they see the way that you live your life all the time. And so we hide ourselves so foolishly as if God can't see us with our hands buried in our eyes and our faces in hopes that we won't be found out. Are you tired of playing the game? Are you ready to be found? Are you weary from laboring and striving for the wrong things? Are you ready to strip off the weight that slows you down? Then fix your eyes on Jesus. When we find ourselves angry and frustrated, confused and worn out, fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you willing to be fully set apart for the purposes of God? Are you willing to allow your, have your heart cut into by the Holy Spirit so that whatever is not holy can be removed? Are you willing to surrender any area of your life, even if it means being found by God? One of the best ways I, anyone has ever given me a, a mental picture for what this process looks like in our life is we become so determined at trying to be disciplined and taking care and removing all the sin stuff out of our hearts. But the way that God works is instead of trying to remove the sin and the garbage from our hearts, we let our hearts be flooded by the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the goodness of God. And what happens is the darkness is pushed out. Instead of us trying to reach in and rip out all the bad stuff, when God's goodness invades our heart, there is no space for the darkness anymore, and it is expelled from our hearts. Are you willing to surrender any area of your life, even if it means being found by God? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? We also have our communion workers come up. For those of you who have not yet chosen to follow Jesus, if you're still in your journey, if you're still in a process of trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, or, or in some new way this morning, there's this realization that you can't do it on your own, that you don't have the right materials to save yourself, but that you need a Savior to rescue you. Is there comfort in knowing that you're not alone? that you don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to rely on your own efforts. The answer has already been provided for you. You just need to accept it by faith. 
this morning, I'm gonna give you the opportunity as our heads are bowed, and I'm not gonna draw any overt attention to you, but I wanna give you an opportunity to respond. And the way that you would respond this morning, if you have never, if you have, have never made a commitment to follow Christ, to allow him to control your life, then I'm gonna simply ask you, if you're ready to make a decision for that today, I'm gonna simply have you raise your hand. I'm gonna agree with you. I wanna pray for you, and I want you to be lifted of the burden of having to save yourself. Is there anyone this morning that would raise their hand and say, I am in need of God to rescue my life, to be Lord of my life, and forgive me of my sins? You can just raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, for those this morning who have recognized that they are weary and beaten from trying to do it on their own, that they are in need of your son, Jesus Christ, to save them from their sins. We confess this morning that we are in need of a savior. We confess this morning that we are sinners and we need to be rescued from the penalty of sin, which is death. We recognize that Jesus has paid the price for our sin and that you have given us the free gift of relationship with you, that you have called us yours, your dearly loved children. Father, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for making us perfect again. Allow your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. For those of you who have made a decision to follow Christ already, but you recognize that you find yourself like the priests did day after day before the altar, offering the same sacrifices over and over again, making the same promises and pleas with God over and over again, disappointed with yourself over and over again for where you want to be, where you know you should be, but you're not there. We pray against the lies of the enemy that would tell you you have to be good enough You have to do it on your own. You have to be disciplined. And God, we unburden ourselves from all of that. We lay it at the foot of the cross. And we say, God, allow your holiness to permeate every corner of our hearts this morning, Lord God. Transform our hearts by your goodness, not by our attempts to be holy. Father, as we spend time in sharing communion this morning, um, allow your Holy Spirit to pinpoint exactly where in our hearts we need to completely surrender to you to allow you to cut out whatever is necessary so that we can be identified fully with you and that you can do the work that you need to in our hearts.